So this morning, church, we do continue, as you can see on the screen, in this series, Understanding the Gospel, and we are back in the Old Testament again. And we have the privilege of looking at one of the most famous stories in the whole Old Testament, the final 10th plague in the Passover. Final 10th plague in the Passover. And concerning this passage, this this truly is an amazing story and passage in itself and in how it shows us the gospel of Jesus. But since there's a lot that we'll be getting through together this morning, we won't say much about it now. Instead, we'll just begin here by just diving in together. But first, quickly, if this does help you as usual, here's for, as for our outline for how we're going to go through this whole story in Exodus. So the whole account of this story really takes place in all of Exodus 11 and chapter 12. And we just heard a part of that in that scripture reading. But for us this morning, in order to get this story more generally, but also with some detail and how it relates to the gospel, we're going to take this story in three main scenes together. Three main scenes, which will be our three sections this morning. And as for what they are, first, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 11, actually, verses 1 through 10. And we'll start there because that'll be Moses talking to Pharaoh. And there we'll hear the final plague explained and God saying what he'll do. And in that, we'll still see how that applies to the gospel in us. Which then, in our second scene in section, will lead us to chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, which you just heard read. And there we'll see how God, right after chapter 11 gives Moses and his people these pretty unique instructions, right, concerning these lambs and their blood and this Lord's Passover. So we'll talk about that and see why God did it like that, which then, in our third and final scene this morning, will lead us to skip ahead to chapter 12, verses 29 through 32, where we'll finish by more quickly just seeing that this actually happened. And we'll consider how that connects to us in the gospel as well. And so, and so that's where we're going, church. We're, we're mainly just going through this story together this morning. A story which, as you'll see, really foreshadows and even explains the gospel to us. And again, we're doing so in three scenes. First, Moses talking to Pharaoh. Second, the instructions for the Passover. And third, seeing it all finally happen. And so all that said, let's just dive in then and begin our first section together, church, our first scene in section. And again, for this, we're actually going to be in all of chapter 11 and looking at Moses talking to Pharaoh, explaining the final plague and seeing what God says he'll do here. And for this, we're going to go through these 10 verses together in a few big chunks, a few big chunks. And as we do so, we'll see what's going on and what it means. But first, just quickly before we read anything here, just remember, as for the context here in Exodus chapter 11... If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you probably know, right, the story of Moses and Pharaoh and these Egyptian plagues. And in those plagues, what's basically going on is that God sent Moses to demand to Pharaoh that God's chosen people, the Israelites, be released from their slavery in Egypt Egypt, so that they can go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. And so Moses over and over goes and he demands that of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh famously keeps refusing. And therefore, plague after plague happens to show to Pharaoh and to show to the Egyptians, and also really importantly, to show to the Israelites who the true living God actually is, right? And what he can do. And quickly on that, just just so you know, because it's pretty fascinating, so many of those plagues are even judgments as well against the so-called Egyptians' gods to prove that point. Because, for example, think of the plague of darkness, which is actually the plague right before this, the ninth plague in chapter 10. 
Because if you know Egyptian beliefs at all, which you might from your school days, you probably know that Ra, the sun god, right, was basically the chief of the gods among the Egyptians. And so think about it. The real God making darkness happen over all the land of Egypt for three whole days and Ra not being able to do anything about it. Well, that sort of judgment and proving who really was God was a huge reason why all of these plagues happened. But anyway, so that's where we are here in Exodus, which finally all leads to this. So now let's begin chapter 11 together. And for a first chunk here, look down at your Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Exodus 11, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So you can see there, to start this chapter, there's really two things happening there. Two things. First, in verse 1, you see it. God tells Moses straight up that there's only going to be one plague more. And then, quote, afterward, Pharaoh will let you go from here. In other words, Moses knew, and we now know in advance that this is, this is going to be it. In God's plan, he wanted there to be ten plagues and only ten plagues. Because after this, this final plague, the Israelites will go free. That's a promise from God. All right, so that's the first thing here, but that's not it. Because then second, after that, as you heard, though, is verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, where, where God tells Moses to, to ask the, tell the people to ask their neighbors for silver and jewelry. Right, and that seems kind of weird to us. And so why is that there? And in answer to that, it's short that in God, all the way back in Exodus 3, he promised Moses that not only would the Israelites be freed, but one of the promises he made to his people is, quote, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. Meaning they wouldn't only be freed, but they'd be provided for and blessed as well. And so to start here in basic, those are the two things going on here. God is making good on his promises to rescue and his promises to provide. Which next, moving on, leads us to verses 4 through 7. And here's, here's the most important verses in this first scene of ours. And on this, just so you know, it's implied Moses is talking to Pharaoh now. So now look down your Bibles, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 11. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. That you may know, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so this is pretty fascinating because in short, that, that's God telling us exactly what he's going to do in this final plague and judgment. What's he going to do? Well, you can see in these first three verses, verses four through six, he basically describes in detail the judgment that's coming. 
And that's how notice in verse 4 he says clearly, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And quickly for you and I, we don't want to skip past that. Because hearing that, that means, let's be really clear, in this final plague and really in all the plagues, God is himself executing the judgment. God is doing it. Meaning God isn't merely using things, natural things like frogs, flies, darkness, and death to make a point. He, he clearly is. But technically, this is the creator. The creator God, the judge, executing right and fair and fitting judgment. And so this will be God's doing. But still, what will he do? Well, as you know, he will go out about midnight. In verse 5, quote, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. In short, that is the plague, that's the judgment. And then God is clear in the rest of verse 5 that this isn't going to be some random thing that only happens to some Egyptians, but it'll happen from the highest level Egyptians like Pharaoh to the lowest. And it'll happen even to the animals. All the firstborns in Egypt will die. Which is why finally on what will happen in the judgment in verse 6, that's why we see there, quote, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt will happen, such as, such as there's never been nor will ever be again. All because this really will happen. And it will be awful. Right, so that's what God says in verses 4 through 6 about what he'll do. But then God also adds verse 7. Verse 7, which just so you know, I know this is a lot, but for this first set scene of ours, I think verse 7 is easily the most important verse here. Because think about it. So what will God do here is for the Egyptians, we know what he's going to do. But amazingly, for his people, look again at verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so why is that important? Well, because amazingly, let's make sure we get this. God is very clear. Every single firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. No exceptions. But then on the flip side, not even a single person will even be sort of hurt among the people of Israel. And we know that because that's why God says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beef. Because in brief, that's, that dog growling is probably an idiom or a saying back then, which basically means that while the Egyptians are really going to be punished with their death of the firstborns, yet we need to know for the Israelites, they won't even have something as small as a dog growling against them happen. Which finally all this should lead us to ask, but why? Right, but why do it like this, God? And to answer that, notice, and this is big gospel truth in a way, notice God actually tells us why at the end of verse 7. He says, quote, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God wants to show he makes a distinction. That's why. And this is important because that means it's not that God says that he's doing what he's doing because it happened to be that all the individual people in Israel have been so obedient and worthy while all the individual Egyptians have just been so awful. Not at all. Rather, it's, quote, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. Meaning, just think about this church. All we know in the story so far is that God just wants it to be clear that with his people, Israel, and with those who are not his people, Egypt here, there is a distinction in this judgment. Right, so that's verses 4 through 7, which stick with me all finally on this first scenes of ours. Leads us to the final part of chapter 11, verses 8 through, 11, 8 through 10. So look there, 8 through 10. And all these servants of yours shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. So in short, those verses are basically Moses telling Pharaoh that this will happen, and then Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence while Pharaoh's heart is once again hardened, and he doesn't let the people go. Meaning, here comes another plague, the final plague, the worst judgment yet, and God will do it on Egypt, and yet not on the Israelites, all because God wants it to be clear that he makes a distinction, and then his people will go free. And so all that said, that's, that's our first se- section and scene here, church. That's chapter 11. And that more so in this story is just the big setup for what's about to happen, right? And yet for us, I do think even there, in the midst of all of that, there's actually two big gospel truths that we can glean from what we just read. Two gospel truths for us to consider. And so let's look at those together before we move on. And so as for gospel truth number one there, let's just think a little more about Pharaoh and the Egyptians here. Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And this is interesting to consider because the reality is, on the one hand, we know that they're God's enemies, enslaving God's people, and so they deserve judgment. But on the other hand, I do think we should, in a sense, feel for them because we know what's coming. Because after reading that chapter, we know that this is going to happen, and it will be awful, right? And feeling like that for them, therefore, a question we might be asking is, so why really does the Lord God do what he's doing here? Why does he judge so seriously like this? And the answer to that as we've said a few times in this series together. So God here will basically rightly judge the Egyptians like this. And, and we know he can do that with something like plagues and this story because the truth is if, if God wants to show the penalty for sin and execute right judgment like this in our world, in history, just like he's going to show that on the final day at the final judgment, then he can do so. Right? He can do so. And in basic, again, that's, that's, that's what God says he's going, to do, he's going to do. And the gospel truth then for us on that is therefore to see that the right judgment apparently from God on sin is that sin deserves death. Right? Sin deserves death. It really does. Or to say it another way, the Egyptians here rebelled against their creator God just like we naturally rebel against our creator God. And so what God is doing here is not random. Rather, it's because as God makes so clear in his words, sin does deserve death. So that's what we see here. And therefore, for us, we should be humbled by that and see our sin here as well. Because in a way, these these Egyptians are just like us on our own. We rebel against our creator God. But that said, actually concerning sin here, both in this story and in us, I think we can even go deeper into that gospel truth. Even deeper. Because stick with me, he's taking this a step further. What's also interesting here is that, so yes, we're all sinful, just like each one of these Egyptians were sinful. But think about it. In this chapter even, notice, it's Pharaoh who is more so the one who takes center stage, disregarding God, not listening to God, while his people more so just follow suit, and they also get the judgment. And in fact, on that, you get that Pharaoh-focused reading throughout the whole account of all the ten plagues, right? Because if you ever considered, Pharaoh's the one that Moses keeps going to, and Pharaoh keeps rejecting Moses and God, but then the plagues fall on all the people, not just Pharaoh. It's interesting, isn't it? And And so why is that? And well, in answer to that, in basic, it's because that's also a part of this gospel truth about sin as well. Or better yet, It's just a truth about how things really are, how we each work, and why we're each sinners like we know we are. And this is that church, the Bible is clear, concerning sin, 
Yes, we are each sinful, just like the Egyptians were each sinful, but also the truth is clear. We are each sinful because we are children of Adam, as the Bible puts it. Meaning, naturally, we are connected to and we're represented by a single sinful person as well. And now I know, on that especially, you probably have a lot of questions. We don't have time to get into all of them here, but I bring that up here. On this passage, because think about it, this is something that's true in the Old Testament and New Testament over and over again. You see it here in Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You actually see it often in the Old Testament Israelite kings and how their sin affects the people. And finally, Jesus' apostles in the New Testament make it clear this is true with us and Adam. And, And what's the point? Well, with Adam specifically, this is what theologians have called original sin, original sin, meaning it's the truth that Adam, in a way, did represent us, just like Pharaoh, in a way, represented his people. The Bible's so clear about that. And so because Adam fell, we all fell too, meaning we are each now part of this sinful humanity we all know, and we each sin as well, just like Adam sinned, just like Pharaoh and these Egyptians. And so I know it's a lot, but that's, a, that's the first gospel truth we see here, just about sin. But that more quickly, though, leads us to the second, the second gospel truth. And for this, now let's just think a little more about these Israelites here, though. Right? The Israelites. Because as we hinted at earlier, something that also makes this story so strange is realizing that, and yet, as for the Israelites, they're sinful as well. They're sinful as well, meaning in this story, there's no reason in themselves as to why the Israelites on their own, or church, for us in the gospel, there's no reason why we on our own shouldn't receive the same punishment for sin. And yet the gospel truth is, number two, that in the Old Testament and New Testament, yes, we're sinful, but also it is the same God and judge who can decide to come in and say, and yet, for these specific people, I will make a distinction. I will make a distinction. And again, it's not because he sees something in those people that makes them worthy of such a distinction. Rather, it's really because of the Lord and his distinction. Or to say that all, using a word maybe we're all familiar with more, it's ultimately because of God's grace. His grace. Because in short, what grace is by definition, Old Testament, New Testament, is unearned, unmerited, undeserved, distinctive favor and love and kindness from God. I hope you get that. It is God treating you and I better than we could ever deserve. Showing us kindness, showing us love, just because he wants to. And again, if you're tracking, that's kind of what we're starting to see in this story. And that's how the gospel ever comes to any of us as well. So church, that's our first scene here in our first section in chapter 11, which now for our next scene in section leads us to chapter 12, 1 through 13, which you heard read earlier. And here now we're going to see God tell Moses these instructions about these lambs and their blood and the Passover. And on this, before we get into any of this, so I know a lot of us probably are familiar with this part of the story, but before we even read it, let's just take a minute and step back and just consider with me something about This story even being something that God had happened here. That this is even here in the Bible. Because I think this is huge. And so for what I mean, so you can see clearly in your Bibles, right, that what we're about to read in chapter 12, which you heard in scripture reading, it obviously comes right after chapter 11, right? 
And for, and for you and me, we're so used to hearing about this story, about the final plague and then these lambs and the blood and the Passover. We're used to hearing that, that to us, this transition from that just happening in 11 to this in chapter 12 seems kind of natural and it makes sense. But I think that perhaps the biggest or one of the biggest things that you and I can think about right now that can really make this whole story stand out to us and maybe even more beautiful and point us to the gospel is to think about how in reality, all of this that we're about to read about these lambs, the blood, the Passover, theoretically, it didn't need to happen. Theoretically, it didn't need to happen. Meaning, think of this. So we already know that Israel are God's people. We know that by now. And we've already seen in the nine plagues before this that God had some judgments happen to the Egyptians while they did not happen to the Israelites. And just generally, we already know that this is, he's, he's God. He, he can do whatever he wants, including be gracious to certain people if he wants to. And then finally, remember, we all just went through it. Think of it. God, we know, just said and promised that the final plague and judgment, it's going to happen to the Egyptians as they will face judgment of the firstborns. And yet, as for the Israelites, God has already promised that it will not happen to them. And so all that said, the point is, I hope you're seeing that theoretically then, what could have happened right away in the next chapter 12 is that all of that could have just happened. You get that? The, the final plague could have right away taken place. And the Egyptians would have been punished. And God would have graciously been, uh, not had his people go through judgment. And they would have all gone free just as God promised. And if, and if so, this story made, would have made total sense. And God would have been true to his promises and rescued his people. And yet, as we know, that's not how the story happens. Instead, think about it. God almost interrupts that potentially clean and tidy story by now talking to Moses and giving him and his people all of these details and instructions about these lambs and their blood and the Passover. Meaning, yes, the promised plague will happen. Yes, there's going to be God's gracious distinction, just like a lot of the other plagues. And yes, after this, the Israelites will go free. But in the middle of all of that, climactically and intentionally by our God, is this, is what we're about to read. And so with all that said, finally, let's now just dive into this together. For this section, we'll take it in chunks again. And we're going to start with Exodus 12, verses 1 through 6. So look at your Bibles, Exodus 12, all of 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So there's a ton in there, but let's break down what's going on together. So first, notice in verse 1, the Bible is clear. This is still happening while they're in the land of Egypt. So the deliverance has been promised, but it hasn't happened yet. But for now, they're told to do something. 
And so what are they told to do? Well, to summarize all this, in short, in verse 2, they're now told to make sure that they remember this. This is going to be the beginning of month for them. Beginning of month. And then, in verses 3 and 4, you heard it, each man is to take a lamb for his household. And specifically, as you heard, it's to be the right amount of lamb, meaning the right amount of people in the house so that the lamb feeds just the right number of people which you can sense implies that this lamb is to be perfectly sufficient to provide for every single person inside that house. Right? And then, importantly, in verse 5, this lamb chosen must be without blemish and a year old, meaning it's to be a lamb without any imperfection, and it's to be so young that you wouldn't just kill it anyways. That's the idea. Meaning, it's to be a lamb that, in a sense, does not deserve to die. And then finally, and climactically at the end there in verse 6, quote, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at midnight. Which remember, it's significant because this is the night of which God said that he's going to come at midnight to judge. And so they're to do this at twilight in preparation for God coming at midnight. So that's the first chunk of these instructions. And really all that's so fascinating. Because again, can, can you imagine hearing this for the first time? It's so specific and detailed, and yet it's also so clear that to go take a lamb without blemish, just enough to provide for everyone inside the household, and then to kill and eat that lamb. But that's not it. That then leads next to just verse 7, what they're then supposed to do with the lamb's blood. So look there now, just verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And so now think about it. If you're reading this for the first time, this is even more weird and even fascinating because now the lamb not only is just to provide food for everyone inside to eat, but now also the blood of the lamb they were to put on the outside of the doorposts and the lintel. And really that's just the sides and the top of the doorframe. And so now the lamb's blood is on the outside, basically all around their door, and the people are inside eating this lamb. Which next leads to chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. And now they're told more specifics about how they're to eat the lamb. So look there. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So stop there for now. And to summarize all that, as you can see, there's really two big points that are happening there. Number one, they're to make sure you heard it, that they cook the lamb with fire, that they do not boil it, and they burn up anything that's left. Meaning they're to make sure that this lamb goes through fire and is completely consumed like a sacrifice. And then number two, importantly, also notice how so much of those verses is about how they're supposed to do all this kind of ready to go and in haste. For example, that's why it's unleavened bread in verse eight, because the idea there is the bread doesn't have time to leaven. Or as the middle of verse 11 says, they're to eat it, quote, with your belt fastened, the sandals on your feet and your staff in hand. And why is that? Well, because think about it. Remember, Remember what was promised in chapter 11. They will go free after this night. And so what's so cool about this picture is not only the lamb and the blood and the covering of the doorposts and enough food for everyone inside, but also they do this because they know they're going to be okay. They are ready and expectant knowing that God is going to rescue them. 
which all then finally on the second section and scene leads to verses 12 and 13. And here God just finally explains why he's doing all this. And we'll actually start that last sentence in verse 11. So the end of 11 through 13. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. And on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So those are the climactic verses on these Passover details. And on that, let me just say, we know like this word and this idea of the Passover. But church, let's not let our familiarity with this stop us from being amazed at what God is saying he's doing here. Because, because as we can all see, for these Israelites back then, the idea here now is all crystal clear. Because now, like God said in chapter 11, we see God say in verse 12 here that he will come and pass through the land of Egypt that night. He will do it. And remember, the Israelites also are there in Egypt. And so God will come. God will be the right and fair judge executing proper and fitting judgments on sin. Because he is the Lord. That's, that's what he says in verse 12. But then in verse 13, as for the Israelites, he, he won't punish them. He really won't. And why, quote, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Right there, church, that, that's the Passover. Think of the scene. God is there in Egypt executing right judgment on sin and sinners as he should. As sin deserves, he is holy. And there's Egyptian sinners in their houses, and then there are Israelite sinners in their houses. There's basically no different in them, difference in themselves. And yet, God will see the Lamb's blood, and he will pass over the Israelite houses. He won't execute his judgment on them. And the reason so clearly implied here is because, church, it's because the Lamb is protecting them. That's it. Or more specifically, it's because the blood is a sign for them. You can see that in verse 13. Quote, it's a sign for them. And a sign of what? Well, it's a sign that, in fact, a judgment has already been executed in that house. A right sacrifice and punishment has already been paid. And that's the lamb. The without blemish lamb. The lamb that sustains them. The lamb that protects them. That's it. And therefore, no judgment comes to them, even though they, on their own, deserve it. And church, that's, that's the second scene and section of ours. And really, I, I just hope you're seeing, I'm sure you are, that that's so clearly the heart of the gospel. <laughs> it so deeply is. And specifically, connecting this to our previous section and building on it, we now see that that's why the Lord will make this distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. You get that? Because think about it. So as we said before, the distinction here can't be happening because the Israelites were so good and without sin on their own. Because they weren't. Instead, it was simply because they were God's people. But still, the question is, but why, as God's people, aren't their sins rightly punished by this judge? How is this holy God going to come so close to them, as sinners, to their very door, literally, and yet not punish them? And the answer to that is why I think God had this whole Passover story happen here. Because consider this. If God just once again rescued them without this, 
Well, then in this scene, he could have done that, but the Egyptians then maybe could have wondered why they got the punishment while the Israelites didn't. And, and they might have been wondering that throughout all of the plagues. But even more important than that, if God didn't have this Passover, then the Israelites could have thought that they were rescued really because they're pretty great. <laughs> in fact, if you know your New Testaments at all, that's a wrong thinking that sadly became pretty common in the Jews of Jesus' day because many of them thought that because of their Jewish lineage or ethnicity that that's why they were God's people. And so the point is, if, if God finally delivered them out of Egypt without this happening here, without the blood and the lamb, then they could have thought that. That it was their Jewishness or something like that that made them worthy of rescue. But in short, proving that it isn't their deserving, their earning, or their ethnicity in itself, that's a big reason why God did what he did and did it this way. It was so that they could see that, yes, they too were sinful like the Egyptians. They deserved punishment because the Lord God was coming through to their very door and punishing sinners who deserved that punishment. But then, in God's plan, he also had it that, and yet when he saw the lamb, the blood of the lamb, that'd be a sign to them, and even a sign to God, that that judgment has already happened in that household. Blood has already been shed there, and therefore God will not judge them because the lamb was judged in their place. Rather, he'll rescue them. And again, church, that's, that's the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. And that's why, concerning Jesus in the New Testament, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but this is why in history, Jesus is handed over to be killed on the night of the Passover. That's not random. Uh, or as Mark says in his narrative in Mark 14, 12, and I love this because this is right before Jesus enters Jerusalem to do his last supper with his disciples and then be killed. And just hear what Mark comments as he's writing his gospel. This is Mark 14, 12, quote, And on the day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? End quote. And so it was the Passover, and Mark writes, this was specifically when they, quote, sacrificed the Passover lamb, and his point seems to be, and now here comes the ultimate lamb to be sacrificed. The lamb that all of those lambs are always pointing to. Or also in the New Testament, hear this from the Apostle Paul, who, remember, was Jewish himself, and he knew his Bible really well as he was trained as a Pharisee. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he, he tells us straight up, quote, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Or finally, think of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, which we'll actually have the privilege of taking together after this message. The Lord's Supper is basically our Passover meal for us, where we regularly remember that it's the Lamb Jesus and Jesus alone that saves us. Because think of it, what does Jesus tell us to do in the Lord's Supper? Well, there's two elements, right? Two elements. There's the wine, which represents Jesus' blood, which is the blood of the lamb, which protects us and rescues us. But then there's also the bread, which represents Jesus' body, which was sacrificed, and which we even, in a sense, eat. That is exactly the Passover. <laughs> The body and blood of the lamb saved them. The lamb's body was sacrificed and eaten. And when God saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over them. And so it is for us. It's amazing, church. And therefore, the point is, as we read this story, as you just heard it, we need to know this really was always pointing to Jesus. Always pointing to Jesus. That's not just some clever connection. Instead, in this story, 
God is showing them back then. He's showing us even today that he can and he will rescue whoever he wants to rescue. He'll make that distinction. But it will not be people who are moral or good or upstanding on their own. That wasn't the case in this story, nor is that Christianity. Christianity is not about being so good or religious that you somehow merit God passing over you. Instead, back then and still today, the people God's rescues are those who are protected by the blood of the Lamb because the Lamb has been judged in their place. End story. That's it. Which finally, on the scene in section, leads us to say that we do need to point out, though, that yes, let's be really clear, it is true that just like for these Israelites, they actually did need to go, think about it in the story, they actually did need to go and get that without blemish lamb and kill it and put its blood on their doorpost, meaning they actually had to apply these instructions, instructions to themselves. So let's be clear, so for us and for anyone all over the world, we too have to take and apply this gospel, right? The blood of Jesus. We have to, in a sense, take his blood and put, put it over the doorposts of our hearts, if you will. Meaning we do each need to personally accept Jesus' blood in our place. Right? That's clear, that's faith, that's receiving Jesus as our life. That's accepting the gospel. And, and I do pray that we've all done that here this morning. And if you're here and you haven't done that, maybe you do so for the first time this morning. Apply Jesus' blood in your place by trusting in Christ. And so let's be clear, we all need to take this and apply this and trust in Christ. But still, again, let's get this. Church, the overarching point here of this story, though, is, and yet, if we do that, we need to know that our salvation is not mainly about us doing that. Because consider this, no sober-minded Israelite would have woken up the next day and seen that their firstborn that they loved so much was spared while the Egyptians were understandably wailing in sadness. No Israelite would have woken up and heard all that wailing and thought that they saved themselves and made that happen on their own. Instead, they would have been amazed at the fact that the blood of the lamb worked. And they would have known that it was all God and his mercy, and especially that it was all because of the lamb's death. And that's it. In church, again, so it is for us with our rescue in Jesus. And so that's our first and second scenes here. Which finally for us in this story, and by, brief, by far briefest of all, will lead us now to skip ahead to our third and final scene where we'll just see what happened. We'll just see that it happened. And for this now, turn with me to chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. Verse, chapter 12, 29 through 32. And there will be more than we can cover here as we read this. But I just want to read this final paragraph because you're going to see that what God promised did happen. And as you hear these verses, just notice there's going to be a lot of echoes of verses and promises that we've already been covering this morning. So Exodus 12, 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. 
and bless me also. So again, exactly as God said, so it happened. It really happened. The details are here, right, concerning the Egyptians. As verse 30 says, quote, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. God's judgment came, and that is supposed to be sobering to read about, because let's be honest, we can read that easily, but that must have been an awful sight, a terrible sound that morning. So that happened, that's clear, but then also what's also clearly implied here is that, and yet for God's people, it happened that whoever had the lamb's blood on their door, they didn't have any firstborns dead. Meaning, let's just sum this up, let's just be so clear, church, in this story, judgment did happen. Just like you and I need to know in the gospel message, God tells us that just like he came into Egypt, so God, so Jesus, will one day come back into our world here. And what does the Bible say he's going to right away do? Well, we know it. He's going to rightly judge. Judge the same Savior who's the same one who's the Savior of the world is the judge of the world. And so we see that judgment happening here in this story, in history, just like it will happen in our stories, in our histories, whenever Jesus decides to come back. Because one last time, sin deserves real punishment from the holy God. It leads to real consequences for us. And one day God will righteously as the judge and lovingly because he loves his people and because he loves this world, he will one day eradicate all sin and sorrow from this universe forever. But then also, one last time, in this Exodus story and in the gospel for us, remember, even in the midst of judgment, a distinction and a rescue happens as well a distinction and a rescue where God separates off his people. And again, why can and why does he do that? Or what sets us apart? Or how really did their and how really does our rescue and salvation work? And the answer clearly in this story and with Jesus is it really is only because of the loving God's provision of the blood of the Lamb. That's what distinguishes his people. That's what saves his people. That's what rescues me and you alone. Which again, let's be really clear, is good news, church. Both now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we really do have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together this morning. Let's pray.